0: This is an example of speech.
1: Welcome back to Tell Me What to Think. A free from oversight and free of charge Thoughtfully improvised, expletive, deleted, details, expanded, whistle, blow, hard, evergreen, topical heatwave of an ongoing conversation, Current podcast, in which we discuss politics, global affairs, current events, and anything else that bubbles up from the unmoderated comment section in our brains. We urge you to join us and tell us what you think. You'll listen to the archives. Go to stoneduckmedia.com or tellmewhattothink.com You can contact us at tm. W-T-T-P-O-D at gmail.com I'm producer Pete You can contact me on Twitter At bloated nemesis And your host is Charles Minnick Who is on Twitter at green underscore weird Which is spelled W-Y-R-D This episode Charles speaks with candidate For congressional office From Minnesota's 4th district David Sandbeck prepared to get righteous and reactionary, this is Tell Me What
0: to Think. Alright, welcome to Tell Me What to Think. I'm your host, as always, Charles Minnick, and tonight I have with me David Sandbeck.
2: Hello, Charles. Thank you for your invitation.
0: Thank you for uh, coming on the show. You bet. Uh, Tell me what to think about uh, Minnesota's fourth.
2: So the 4th Congressional District has been represented for what will be 20 years in this upcoming election by Betty McCollum uh, at the congressional level, and we haven't seen someone who is leveraging the full potential of the district, and we haven't had the benefit of a competitive primary in the 4th Congressional District since she ran in 2000. And so it's time, and I went around and, and... Talk to um, you know community leaders and uh, other elected representatives to see uh, about you know options out there to to deliver a competitive primary. And there wasn't there wasn't another option, so it had to be me. And uh, so why does this need to happen? Well, you know, one of the first things Betty did in her first term, uh, representing the fourth district, was to vote for uh keeping soft money in politics. And what what does that mean? Well that means the most vile corrupt money coming in and buying our party at the national level, at the state level, and at the local level. That's the kind of money that is given to the party units. So the big story in, in 20 or one of the big stories of 2016 was how the DNC was funneling money to uh, Hillary's campaign in Brooklyn using this soft money workaround uh, and so that's just one example of a uh, of, of party soft money corruption influencing the party in a big way uh, that makes for an a really uncompetitive democracy of minimums another thing uh, even in her first term you know she talks about defending the Constitution now when when we talk about Donald Trump but where was that passionate defense of our Constitution when she voted for the Patriot Act and we cannot put that genie back in the bottle it'll be 20 years and we cannot put that genie back in the bottle we still have this massive sweeping surveillance state Uh, So it started 20 years ago with with our representative and it's continued to this day. Uh, And the big issue that that I'm running on uh, that I'd like to deliver a competitive primary for is not just those important issues, but single payer healthcare. I think this district wants someone to represent us on this issue. I've knocked on over a thousand doors. I've gone and talked to all kinds of progressive groups. And there's a consensus about a lot of these issues, you know, finance corruption of our party, um, single payer health care, taking on the military industrial complex. There is a convergence on these issues and there's no risk for the incumbent to be a champion on these issues. And uh, so it's time that uh, we expand the spectrum of debate and have a competitive primary.
0: Um, just to clarify a point, your first point, you're talking about sure. the uh, state parties being used as paths through, basically.
2: They can to be to the campaigns, uh, and and it, it's not. It, it was such a large scale in 2016 that that I bring up, and that's a story that people are already familiar with. So I wanted to use that, but um, you know, these this soft money corruption is is pervasive, and what I mean by that is. The entire establishment, how the DCCC, the Congressional, uh, the the Democratic uh, Congressional Campaign Committee, um, every member of Congress is assigned an amount of money to to go and get to get their special appointments and assignments in Congress to have power and influence. You have to raise that money, and there's only five percent of the population that donates, and you know it's largely the ownership class, the one percent. So they're incentivized to go listen to those people instead of their real constituents. There are there's a point system, and it doesn't include you don't get points for going out and recruiting more voters or doing grassroots uh, grassroots campaign financing. You are rewarded for getting those big dollar corporate donors, and for example, our incumbent representative, Betty, is the, region, the Midwest region vice chair at the DCCC. And so she has to go out and raise money from these people so that she can maintain her appointments. What appointments are those? She is on the subappropriations Committee for Defense Spending. She's uh, one of the ranking members and, very important, she's next in line for the gavel, or very potentially, very likely. Uh, the current uh, gavel holder is retiring, so she's uh, next in line for this. Uh, it's very likely she could get it, and that's another reason we need a competitive primary. We need to get her to stop taking money from the military-industrial complex. This is the very industry she's supposed to be regulating on this committee. And this is, again, it feeds into the soft money corruption. She has to raise money from them and they're going to get this money and it doesn't come free There's strings attached with this money even though it's passed through money There's strings attached and that's how you get on these kinds of committees you have to raise money who do you raise it from you raise it from the plutocracy that means you have to do things the plutocracy wants another committee she's on she's the chair Uh, she has the gavel for the um, department of the interior she has two committees uh... that she has a leadership role in and that's unusual so we get Betty uh, in some really important committees but you have to look at the big picture What's she doing in the DCCC? C you now what does that mean corruption how, how, how you know what does that mean it means the DCCC C decides what candidates it's going to support how does it make that decision well the the individual candidates have to raise money they have to they have to meet certain financing goals. Well, who are they raising that money from? Once again, the plutocracy, the ownership class. It's just pervasive throughout the system how we've done our campaign financing. So, for example, I think his name's Ian Todd has been challenging Tom Emmer uh, in his district, and he, he earned the party endorsement. But the DCCC didn't help him with financing, didn't bring any money his way. But the DCCC will go out and and recruit corporate lawyers people that have registered Republican before to go and run and, and and pretend to be Democrats and they'll finance those kinds of candidates but not real progressives and so they'll give someone like Tom Emmer a pass and what that means is Tom Emmer he's the national uh, Republican chair for the Republican National Committee for for Uh, the Congress, uh, the uh, Republicans equivalent of the DCCC, and we give him a free pass. We don't support a competitive primary in that district, and I'd love to ask Betty why. Um, When I go to her town hall, uh, she makes it evident that we're only going to take questions from certain kinds of people, Mm -hmm. and she'll use a progressive way to to accomplish this and say, we're going to take questions from the women in the audience. So that, of course, is going to preclude taking a question from me. Uh, so she's she's clever. She's She knows what she's doing. Uh, but we need this competitive primary, again, to expand the spectrum of debate on these issues.
0: Uh, well, that's a pretty wide-ranging answer. Um, you talked, uh, I guess, let me ask you the question I always ask every uh, interview I give. Uh, sure. What does the Green New Deal mean for your district? It's a heavily urban district and not necessarily as diverse as other places but incredibly diverse by midwestern standards
2: (laughs) so we do have a diverse district by midwestern standards i grew up on the west side of st paul that's a diverse neighborhood a lower a lower income neighborhood um and so i went to a small school with diversity and it's something that that you know I, i just have that background um what does the green new deal mean in the fourth congressional district it means we need to have a smart grid it means more good paying jobs that can't be outsourced and so that means it also means security and I think about our electrical grid and how exposed it is how old it is how all of the almost all of the the essential components in our electric grid are sourced from other countries. We don't build those components anymore. I look at that as a risk to our national defense. So what is the Green New Deal? It's also looking at our national defense and our local community defense. How long can the hospitals run if our grid is so vulnerable? That's where we need to look at microgrids. That's where we can look at uh, at different kinds of energy alternative energies, wind energy, solar energy, and storing that and doing it in local uh in a local way so that we have micro grids that aren't so um, exposed as our large grid is. We could I mean there's some areas I could show you in the fourth congressional district where if you are a person of ill intent, you can really mess things up. It's all exposed, but if you have micro grids, you can have all the redundancy you need all over, and it is a it's a national security issue, and it is a a jobs issue, and uh, so I, when I think about the Green New Deal, I think about an entire reconstruction, a new reconstruction of the American economy, and what does that mean? It means jobs that can't be outsourced. It means national defense, national security, and it means an, an economy that respects our stewardship of the biosphere of the planet?
0: Um, well, that's a great answer. Um, specific uh <clears throat> sorry. I that's alright. I guess my, the one thing that I'm having a problem with is it's not necessarily a national security, but a personal security first and foremost, right? I mean, it's one thing to think about the country when the power grid goes out, but what about people's oxygen tanks and other medical apparatus?
2: so it is also an issue of personal security and if you're a person of means you have your backup generator and you have access to those things but as a community you know 95% of us aren't going to have those kinds of redundancies but a small microgrid focused new uh, energy system is going to have us all covered and have us all personally secured and also uh, built out on a national scale would have the country secured and uh we look at also the potential of you know, cyber threats and how so much of the new technology that people use in, in heating their homes and turning on and off uh, devices inside their homes, how that's all connected and how that's all exposed. How uh, a lot of the, the gadgets and the technology is unsecure and vulnerable. And what does that mean? It means a nefarious actor could say all the houses set the temperature up high, turn on all the lights all at once, and you can create brownouts and you can create some some points of chaos where we're exposed. Uh, and again, this is something nobody really talks about, but again, it comes back to security, personal security, national security, and an economy that uh, respects our stewardship of the environment.
0: Um, great answer. So... Having been, shall we say, always a secret ballot voter, tell me what to think about caucuses. It seems like a combination of LARPing and schoolyard bullying.
2: So caucuses are, are there's a right way and a wrong way to do them. We're one of maybe 12 states. It could be as many as 16 states that do caucuses. Some states do them as closed caucuses. They're very exclusive. Uh, and that's the wrong way to do them. Uh, in Minnesota and in Iowa, we have open caucuses. And that means anybody can come. Anybody can participate. When you show up, you have to, you have to uh, indicate that you're going to be a Democrat. Um, and that bothers some people. But it's the Democratic Party. Uh, and so I understand how, how that that puts some people off but the good thing is everybody can come the the problem with caucuses uh, as opposed to just primaries uh, is that they're time intensive if you are a working family you know can you take that time if you have children can you take your children with you you um, And so there's those kinds of issues and those kinds of families that get excluded. Whereas if you're more affluent and you have normal work hours, you can show up and participate and have your voice heard. Um, I can say in Minnesota, we do caucuses really well. And, uh, and of course in 2016 we had such uh, a huge turnout just in the 4th congressional district we had somewhere around 14,000 16,000 maybe people showed up to caucus that is huge a typical high caucus turnout is 7,000 people 16,000 almost that uh, i mean that that excited uh, I mean, I thought that was wonderful, but it overwhelmed so many people. It turned so many people off. They didn't think they were getting their voices heard. So we separated a lot of the political energy this year. And for the first time since 1992, Minnesota has introduced a primary for the presidential election but we still have caucuses coming up so I'm so glad you asked we have caucuses coming up February 25th and why bother go to the caucus now if we're not doing the straw poll for the president well in the state of Minnesota the entire bicameral representative bodies are up for reelection all of the senators are up for re-election and all of course uh, of the House of Representatives in our state house are up for reelection this year as well and so get your voice heard bring whatever issue empowers you as a resolution bring a resolution to whatever issues you're passionate about share that with your community and that can become a part of the the platform that your representatives are then empowered to advocate for and then if you become a delegate you're going to have representatives reaching out to you we have a couple competitive primaries in the 4th congressional district this time around so you get to participate and you get to give your voice Uh, more impact when you participate in the caucus so that's something you don't get from a primary and so I look at the caucus as a as a good thing I understand some people uh, are are upset because of the way it discriminates in terms of if you don't have the opportunity to participate because you work two jobs because you have children um, because maybe you're intimidated uh, by you know by other people with strong opinions, but I, I, I look at it as something that is a very democratic process.
0: Hmm. All right, um, so I was looking at your uh, candidate, your opposition's or, uh, open secrets page, and sure. I didn't realize casinos and gambling was such a huge part of your <laughs> district's well. economy. So it's not nearly $46,000 from casinos and gambling can you speak to that
2: (laughs) yes so Betty's again on the sub appropriations committee for uh, the interior and that means all of the Indian Health Services Mm -hmm. uh, are a part of of the appropriations of that committee so she uh, one of her big financial contributors is going to be uh, the indigenous community because she is uh, going to be their their advocate as the chairwoman of the Department of the Interior committee. Um, so yes, uh, she is I, I and I she is a, a wonderful spokesperson for Indigenous rights. And uh, but you know at the same time she accepts I mean she has to um, because of course they contribute. Not that I'm opposed to her position on Indigenous rights. She's she's on the right side of that. Um but you know, it, it, you're absolutely right. A lot of money. I think it might be her top contributor, but All it's right. also because she's on that committee that appropriates funds that goes to uh, indigenous tribes, indigenous populations, and uh, the Department of the Interior also controls federal lands and uh, federal managed lands that are next to and related to um, to uh, tribal entities. So that's why she gets that money because she appropriates money that affects those communities.
0: Hmm. So it's not exactly corruption it's just uh, no. special interest donations. Hmm.
2: Well, it, you know, it's it's so, way, so it, you know, looking at the subappropriations committee on defense, you know, she appropriates the funds for that. So she votes for you know Trump's space force and these ever-growing budgets for the defense department. And you know, a lot of people are turned off by that, and we're turned off by her accepting those kinds of contributions from Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, General Dynamics. And other industries that are um, finan- that are financially tied to these kinds of companies, and then at the same time we look at something that people are less passionate about: uh, indigenous rights and their communities. But uh, it's the same kind of cycle of how the the finance system works. It's just all, you know we, set, we as progressives we support indigenous rights. We don't necessarily support the military-industrial complex, its goals, its aims, its objectives
0: as well we shouldn't um well I guess I'll bring it to a local issue Uh, are you in favor of a high-speed rail between Minnesota and Chicago
2: so this is a loaded question Um, (laughs) because there oh we uh, at some point we are going to have it Uh, it's a matter of between Chicago and and you know Minneapolis and st. Paul we can we can use the existing Rights of way and land, and we can implement medium speed rail. And I know this is not a sexy answer, but that's the most cost effective way we can get an effective um, uh, transportation system between Chicago and and Minneapolis. We have a bigger problem with rail between Chicago and the rest of the country. There is a huge slowdown because uh, of how the Chicago rail infrastructure is created. Um, And we really need to redo, uh, we need to rework uh, rail in this country and things come to a screeching halt in Chicago. I know you asked the question about high speed. Do I support high speed rail? I do support high speed rail. At the same time, we, we have to prove it first. And so we need to explore how that's going to happen. We need to first research the rights of way and the cost of doing it and how many riders can do it um, because I, it's like high-speed rail versus medium-speed rail. If we can get there in four hours or less, do we need to get there in 60 minutes or, or you know 90 minutes? If we compare the cost of doing medium-speed versus high-speed, maybe the taxpayers, maybe the people be like, hey, between Chicago and Minneapolis medium-speed seems to make sense for now but at some point it's inevitable we will absolutely have it it's just a matter of how soon Um, I think there's going to be strategic opportunities to implement high-speed rail Um, I support it overall but we need to look at the alternatives Uh, and what I mean by that is medium-speed rail using existing easements and access and infrastructure and rights-of-way and improving those and comparing it with doing something like California's done which really hasn't panned out, and there's a lot to talk about in terms of California and what went wrong and how that's been sabotaged by corporate interests. Um, at the same time, I, I think high-speed rail is the future in the United States. At the same time, the United States is huge, and people don't realize, I, or or maybe they do, and but we have to consider where has high-speed rail been implemented and is working in more densely populated regions. So we need to look at the cost and the benefit, and I absolutely want uh, to improve mass transit. Uh, it's also a question of population density, and so we need to make informed decisions, and so we need to fund the kinds of research and studies to make sure we're making informed decisions on where to spend the money.
0: Sure. Uh, having been on that uh, amazing Chinese high-speed rail, I can't <laughs> hope that it comes here fast enough, soon enough. <laughs> um, well, I guess, hmm. what do you think uh, the issue or the main issue? You mentioned healthcare. How many, yeah. per, as a percentage of doors, how many people responded with that as their most important
2: issue? It was a top issue. It's not always their most important issue, but they're all thinking healthcare. And the most impactful stories I've endured that I carry with me are healthcare related. And so it is it is the issue it is so when i say it's my number one issue on the campaign it's not always everyone's number one issue but it's an issue for everyone and i look at this as the issue in 2020 and uh, if we're gonna if you're gonna back a candidate who is giving you all the reasons why we cannot have in the wealthiest nation in human history why we can't have it if they're trying to tell you why we can't have it here but every other wealthy Western democracy has some form of it you're listening to and you're you're being subjected to a type of propaganda if every other Western democracy can figure it out and implement some kind most of them some kind of single-payer healthcare solution and they can do it so can we and that's how you know you're you're listening to someone promulgating propaganda. Everyone else has it, but us. We can't do it, but we're the wealthiest nation in human history.
0: Hmm. Right, cling to the floor. That you're being gaslit. Yeah. Um. Do you know what your opponent's position on health care for all? I mean, obviously, you said she yeah, voted for those massive so defense it, increases, so that probably could have paid for some of some measure of Medicare for all.
2: It sure could have. <laughs> um. Betty has positioned herself as supporting medicaid for all and what that means is she supports a public option that people can buy into a medicaid system and if you know what medicaid is it is a payer of last resort so it means you have to go through the indignity of selling off all of your meaningful assets you have to become impoverished before you get the access to that care Um, and people don't have time for that if you have aggressive breast cancer, you don't have time for that. Uh, my, one of my friend's parents is dying. She has cancer, it is aggressive, uh, and she's been fighting with this uh, for a long time now. Uh, and she, she has months left. Um, but I have seen the system. And how it abuses us and how people are sacrificed by it tens of thousands of Americans and the support of a public option does not address the waste fraud and abuse it is not really delivering access to care as a right something Betty has said she wants to do but we can do it just by supporting single-payer healthcare and we're going to get rid of all the wasteful middlemen And we're going to save money. The current system, keeping all of these middlemen involved, these private insurers, these PBM pharmaceutical brokers, what we're doing is we're creating waste, fraud, and abuse, rampant waste, fraud, and abuse. We can save money by removing these middlemen. And then everybody's going to have access to care without barriers. And uh, there's no reason why Betty can't be a champion on this issue.
0: Awesome. Um... So, do you have a path to 50,000 votes, and what does that look like?
2: So, if you look at um, a primary that is related, so, we have an August, I'm competing in an August primary. Um, we don't have a governor's race leading the ticket for that primary. So if we look at this kind of contest, uh, I think we'd have to look at, like, 20, 2014, 2014, and, and there was like maybe 34,000 people that showed up in that primary so the barrier um, isn't oh, wow. obscene so 20, for someone 000, like yeah. me to, uh, to compete in. Whereas if I was in a primary that had a governor at the top of it you know and a quarter of a million people turn out, um, a new name without the big recognition would have a very very difficult time. This time around I just have one very difficult, I'll just say very difficult instead of a very, very difficult time. Um, but uh, I have a, a, a marketing plan and it's worked wonderfully. Um, I saw an opportunity uh, in terms of marketing and how to reach more people in the district. It's controversial, but uh, you know there are people that might be outraged by the way I market, but at the same time, Compare that to if I don't take money from the military-industrial complex or the plutocracy, right? And I can find a way to get the message out without that uh, blood money. Uh, I think that's actually more virtuous than taking that kind of money and being able to advertise on uh, the plutocracy's platforms, these these large media outlets, which I am largely avoiding.
0: Sure. What's so controversial about your methods, if you don't mind my asking? Is it just the content of the videos?
2: So, the con- the content's not what's so uh, eye-opening. It's that I have been using adult platforms to uh, get the word out. So uh, You'll see my video next to your smut and, you know, it's actually I can reach half the district on sixty dollars a day um, mm. And so I know there's no other way that I can replicate that kind of value. And I know it works because I've already, I've had more than 50,000 people within the district visit my website. That doesn't mean they're all going to vote for me, but it means I'm getting the awareness out. uh, Something I couldn't afford to do on on these large corporate um, (laughs) platforms.
0: Sure. What did Jesus say? Go to where the people are? (laughs) Exactly. All right. Um, well, uh, you want to plug your social media and what? Sure.
2: website? Sure. I can be found uh, on Twitter, of course, uh, at sign David Sandbeck S-A-N-B-B-E-C-K. Uh, you can find all my links to social media on sandbeckforcongress.com. I'm. Uh, I have a YouTube channel with some vi- with uh, some short videos out there and some of my commercials, and you'll find out they're not obscene. And uh, I, I just put together a music playlist uh, for those who are interested in political-themed music. I Genuinely, I do enjoy the music I, I put together in this playlist, um, and, and if you have total you know, nerds out there that, that don't want to listen to me talk about politics, but want to listen to political music, I have a playlist put together. Ooh, I also have two playlists on there. One of them is How to Caucus. So on my YouTube channel, I have a How to Caucus in Minnesota. The first three videos take less than 20 minutes, and it's going to show you how to do it and make you confident uh, to caucus and become a delegate all the way to the district caucus, because that's where I need your help to nominate me to create a uh, competitive primary in the 4th Congressional District. I also have... A playlist with Thomas Frank. He's the author of *Listen Liberal*, and there's like hours of content with him explaining what went wrong with the Democratic Party over the past few decades. And it is enlightening. And for those of you who, who are going to be engaging with corporate centrists, it's going to give you it's going to give you the information to have the meaningful dialogues to convert them.
0: All right. Know how to convert your audience. Yes. Uh, well, David, uh, thanks for coming on the show and taking time out for this interview. Absolutely, thank you for your time and attention.
2: I appreciate it. push your minds in
1: so we can work towards common goal of peace.
0: Some days it's sunny, some days that raids. Destroy the myths, and we'll break our chains. Break your chains!